What am I protecting? I'm protecting my sanity. The kingdom. Those who I care for. I'm protecting uh, the potential and future of our children. I'm protecting the next generation of children of color. What I'm protecting is my character, my integrity, and my dignity. I believe I am protecting my younger brother. Yeah, I am protecting the glory of God. Each other. My peace. Protecting my peace. Well, we keep asking this question, what are you protecting? And we are going to keep asking that here and today and next week. <clears throat> it's a helpful question because this question is really applied to when we're studying the Old Testament and you run into things you don't understand. You would want to always ask this question, what's being protected? What's being protected in the Old Testament when we run into things that are crazy? Such as some woman driving a tent stake through a bad dude's temple. <laughs> Did you guys get that? Like everybody's like, what? Like, oh, it's more gruesome than you can even imagine. So, um, but Halloween's coming. So, um, so what's being protected during the prophets and the exiles? The land, sure. The Sabbath, big deal. Big identity marker. Nation's identity. The forgotten. What about protecting that everybody lives well and human flourishing? And of course, the glory of God is being protected. So this morning, to make sense of things, because it's a rather um, fast-paced morning, I'm giving you my Bible bookcase. So I hope you picked it up when you came in. Uh, if not, and for everyone at home, I believe it's downloadable. And you'll want it because we're going to jump into this thing every now and then. And you want to look at it. It's a great way, I think, a simplified way to arrange the Old Testament as well as the New Testament's on there too. It's good to fold it up and stick it in your Bible when you kind of get a little lost and even something you might want to make a couple of marks on. So it's this nice way of arranging it. So um, what you find then on the top shelf is the beginning of the Bible, and you see that there are five books of the law. Well, like in Hebrew, it's called the Torah or the Torah. And then you have all these 12 books of history, and then there's some poetry. And then the, the major prophets, five major prophets, well, major prophets works, because Jeremiah wrote two of them. He wrote Lamentations. It's his lament. And then 12 minor prophets are on there as well. And so the... That's what you have going on. And so if you were keen on memorizing this or at least wanted to kind of get an idea of what's going on and say like the Bible, it's just this big, thick black book. I don't know what's going on. Think of it this way. You kind of want to go uh, 512, 5512. Like, Excuse me? 512, 5512. Look at it. You got five books of the law and then you have 12 books of history and then you have five major uh, prophets uh, five books of poetry, five major prophets, and then 12 minor prophets. And that'll get you through, you know, it's all going good until you get to the to the minor prophets. And then you really have to put a little work into it to get that thing memorized, but it's all right there. So um, so now it also then, arranging it this way, makes sense. And if you know anything about your Bible, then you'll realize that something like um, here up in the upper right corner is Nehemiah and Ezra and Esther and these. And you're like, wait a second, those are like third or fourth century and this other stuff's way, way back, like five, 600 years before that. How come they're together? And what about the prophets being in between that? And why'd you put that up there, Bible P? 
people. And it's like, well, because they're history. And so this charts it out as like, put the history together, okay? Even if you have to jump around. So that's why the Bible actually got arranged that way, okay? So keep that in front of you because we're gonna get there here and there and now and then. But let's also then introduce the map. And we've gone through Abraham, we've gone through Moses and the Exodus, and now we're on to the prophets and the exile. And before, you know, these were simple. Abraham, it's just one line of one dude and his clan's journey. And then you get Moses, and it's just Moses, and it's the whole tribe of the Hebrews. The Israelites are leaving. They're making the big way there. Just one line. Uh, Okay. Now over here, we're going to cover about 1,100 years of history here. (laughs) Oh, are we? Yes, yes we are. And it's going to turn into big blotches of color. So jumping into this thing, we're going to be covering somewhere from around 1,400 B.C. to about 300 B.C. Okay, 1,100 years there. So get familiar with what's going on here with the map. You see these, um, I'm going to use the laser pointer here and go to the screen. You see these large swaths of color. Here's the promised land, the original place for Abraham. This is the River Jordan that that Moses and they all crossed. Well, Moses didn't cross over, but where the people crossed over. Here's Jerusalem. And here's Egypt down here, and here's the Tigris and the Euphrates. So what you have then is the the Assyrian Empire is first, and it's yellow, okay? And then the blue, if you're reading the key, well, I'm sorry, I got it wrong. The blue is the Assyrian Empire. The yellow is the Babylonian. So first comes the Assyrians, and then what they share is the green. So the Bible creator, I mean, the map creator people, this could actually be three, four different maps, right? But they're just trying to save ink, I suppose, and collapse it all down to one. So when you have the common area, they're just simply saying like, look, we could have shown you an individual map. We just, we just shoved it all together. And it depends on what century you're talking about who's actually dominating. So early on then, the blue is going to be this whole thing because the Assyrians were had it going. And uh, there's their capital of Nineveh, which becomes important here in a minute. And then later on, the Babylonians, around 700, 600 BC, they have all this this territory here in the green that's shared. So that's kind of what you have uh, happening in the whole thing. All right? Kind of tracking with things, getting, you know, who's on first and so forth. Oh, yeah. And by the way, don't forget that the orange then, let's see if we zoom out, here's, here's the inset the Persian Empire, the last big empire, just pretty much owns the neighborhood, right? Uh, and that's, that's what you need to understand. After the Persians, they dominate until the Greeks show up, the Seleucids, the Ptolemaics, and uh, that's all around 4th, 3rd, 2nd century. After the Greek people, you know, Antiochus and Alexander the Great, then come the Romans. And that brings us right up into Jesus' day when we change the calendar from B.C. to A.D., Now, understand, all of this is entirely very fluid, and drop in on 735, and the map's going to move around on you, right? All those colors are going to go all the way to the place. Just pick any year, and it's going to ebb and flow over the decades and centuries. But what we must walk through with is the fact that the Jews were only really powerful for just a few short years compared to all these other empires that lasted for usually centuries. But at the pinnacle, the Jews really had it going only for just a couple, three generations at the most, really during the time of David is when things are really their most powerful, okay? So understand that. So 
Um, enough of the map and reading. So the Hebrews move into the promised land, and that's the story of Joshua. So if you look at your Bible bookcase, and you're like, let's see, Joshua, Joshua. Oh, there he is. First story, right? Moses, they're standing there on the bank of the Jordan. Sure enough, here comes Joshua. And then, you know, the Deborah story that we just went with, you know, with the tent stick and thing. And uh, so she's in the book there. So you can understand it's 1400. They moved into the land. They're fighting the Canaanites, which is exactly what uh, Miss Mickey was talking about and the kids. And then uh, they set themselves up and they run themselves when they get in, into the promised land using judges, right? So that's how the whole thing's being organized uh, and they're organized in society and stuff. So, um, so that's what's happening. So you enter the land, it's populated with other people and God is saying this and don't miss this because it's gonna get just pounded and pounded and pounded for all of these books here in the Old Testament for the rest of it. All the history, pretty much even in the poetry, all of the, the prophets are all about this one thing. Do not. I repeat, do not, Israelites, co-mingle with the gods and the cultic practices and the, the rituals and the law of the surrounding people. It is not holy. They're, they're not monotheist. They don't believe in one God. And moreover, their laws are vicious and outrageously cruel, such as infant sacrifice and all this other thing. Or for instance, the, the Torah would say like, if you steal a loaf of bread, you make restitution. You, you kill somebody's cow accidentally, you know, you pay him back. If you stole it, you're going to pay back several times. Oh, the pagan surrounding areas, you steal a loaf of bread, you get your hand cut off. A little severe. So, you know, Let's not follow those kind of people. And here you have it, right here in Deuteronomy. Let me just do a little bit of a, a drop in here on several, three different chapters. Deuteronomy chapter six, verse 14. Do not follow other gods, God says. Any of the gods of the people who are, who are all around you. And there it is, chapter eight. If you do forget the Lord your God and follow other gods to serve and worship them, I solemnly, this is a really, really serious moment. I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish be forewarned. Deuteronomy 11, take care or you will be seduced into turning away, serving other gods and worshiping them. During the conquest of the land, <clears throat> every other sentence is something like, don't be seduced by pagan religions, Jews. It won't go well. Instead, they were supposed to influence the land of the Canaanites. Remember, this is all originally promised to Abraham, right? Those people were there. They were supposed to bring them, all the surrounding people there were supposed to come in and live under Torah. Civilize the people. Show them that there is really only one God. Bring everything into order under your uh, law, Israelites. Bring everyone in. Fight the Philistines because they are outrageously wicked, right? So, What's being protected here? Just stop for a moment. What's being protected? The Jews' unique monotheism, the one God, and, and the other rules that are in place about stealing and restitution. And, you know, by the way, everyone knows that uh, John Adams, when he wrote the Massachusetts Constitution, borrowed most all of this from the Old Testament law. So it's American uh, laws are based upon the Bible, you know, on this real, all this sort of thing. Very interesting, right? I guess we all kind of probably learned that in American history or something close to it. 
So that's what's going on. So in 1400 to about 1000 BC, the Jews continued to administer themselves using these judges uh, and uh, the law. So the judges looked at the law, and this is a very tribal clan way of organizing yourself. So you had a clan, there's a judge over it, they took things. You had a grievance, you needed something discerned. It's kind of like going to court as well as having a prophet, as well as having really a, a, a guru in your midst. And that's what the, the, um, the judges were. So that's why the book of Judges then falls under history up here because it's actually historic as opposed to just a if we had a political category, it might be under that. But it's actually just more of a history piece. And that's why it shows up right around there. Okay. But now about 1000 BC, as with all empires, I'm thinking of the British Empire at its pinnacle around 1897. It looks really, really good. It looks spectacular. It's like a holy edifice. Israel looks great. But... It's beginning to crumble and fall apart from the inside. And here's the first thing that goes wrong, and Pastor Garrett taught on this just a few weeks ago. The Jews want a king. They want a king because all the surrounding nations all have a king. And they just wanted to look like the rest of the big boys out there. And they wanted a king well. They didn't like the judges anymore. That's so tribal. And we need like something cool, like all the rest of the people. We want a king. God says, no, 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 no. No, you don't want a king. Believe me, you do not want a king. A king is going to take your daughters. He's going to take your sons and make them into soldiers. He's going to tax you until you die. And the king will want this huge showy palace that you all are going to have to build and pay for And it's going to be filled, that palace is going to be filled with a whole lot of people who want to wear fancy clothes and eat fancy food and don't work. Talk about a swamp. So that's what's going on. You don't want a king. And the people answer, yes, we do. Fine. You want a king? I'm not going to stop you anyway. So... Distinguished scholar, one of my favorite scholars and uh, world-class scholar, Walter Brueggemann. Walter Brueggemann states that the Jews' primary sin was the sin of coveting. Coveting. They wanted what somebody else had. And this sin destroys the entire people. This is their downfall over and over and over. They wanted what the other kingdoms had. They wanted to look big. And so they get this guy Saul and they appoint him. Samuel, the last judge, prophet, guru, Jedi, whatever you want to call him, the last Jedi judge is Samuel. And he says, you don't want a king, but if you want Samuel, I'll anoint him as king. And so Saul Saul gets anointed by Samuel. King Saul, really good looking, big guy, has some immediate military success. He got no taproot of a soul. He doesn't know God. He's not real good with himself. And while he's looking cool, he's all good. He gets a little scared in battle and he freaks out and he runs off and he starts consulting the witches of Endor. 
There's a Shakespeare reference for you, as well as a J.R.R. Tolkien, because the witch king of Angmire, I'm going into nerdland here, the witch kings of Angmire, you know, they also are modeled. Tolkien took it right from this passage. Tolkien, a good Catholic. There is scripture all through Lord of the Rings. There you go. And all the nerds said, amen. I'm good with that. So, all right. Out with Saul and in with the beautiful shepherd boy, David. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant military, wonderful human being, uh, poet, musician, called the friend of God. And he has a deep taproot with the Lord. The year is 1000 B.C., And David is this wonderful person. In 961 BC then, David's son Solomon, the wise Solomon, is also a wonderful human being. But things have become very complicated because they are at their very, very peak, even though things are beginning to fracture. And Solomon's son, the cracks show up. Rehoboam is despicable. Solomon's son, by then, it falls apart. And the kingdom begins to fall apart at this point. And in 922 BC, things are starting to go bad. Now, go back to Solomon for a moment. Because Solomon writes poetry. And this is why a lot of the Psalms and a lot of our Bible is actually written down and recorded during this time. Because they had the time and the space and the luxury and the scribes and the whole bit to get it all done. During Solomon's era here from 961 to 922. Okay. Um, So, everyone, remember... If we look at the map again, so think about this. This is a huge trade route, right? Everyone's pouring from all over the place. They're coming down here to get wheat in in the Nile Delta. Uh, These people travel, even the Silk Road and its beginnings and so forth are out there. And pretty much this place is getting trampled by every caravan that's coming through. Lots of trade happening. You even have the seaports there, right? Very populated. Whether you want it to be popular or not, it is. Okay? So that's what you have going on is all these people coming in, and it is cool. And Solomon is making all of these economic contracts. He's making all of these arrangements. And in ancient times, even after even popular times, uh, I always pick on the British Empire because they're an easy target and easy to remember. And we all have seen the shows like Victoria and the Crown and all the rest of that sort of thing. And if you wanted to seal an economic deal, there was a marriage. So Solomon gets all of these wives and all of these concubines and all of them are like seals on these economic deals with all these various tribes. Okay, you tracking with me? Just like um, Prince Albert, Victoria's wife in the 19th century, British Empire, right? Did you guys see this sort of thing on whatever show it is? Uh, Amazon Prime or something like that. So remember, Albert's not British. He's Hessian. He's German, in other words, right? That's how, as a matter of fact, King George III, that dude we all, you know, had a revolution over and left. Remember, he's Hessian too. Winston Churchill pointed that out. He said, we British are not a part of King George III. That guy, he was a, you know, interloper. That's why, we, that's why we British and Americans are all one people divided by a common language. So um, that's what Churchill, how he assessed the whole thing as he tried to grab hold of America's success. I digress. Back on track. So all of this sort of thing is going on, right, with all of these marriages. And guess what? All these caravans, all these people are coming in, and they're coming into Jerusalem, and they're looking around, and they're saying like, this is incredible. The gold, the silver, the cedar, this place has got spectacular wealth. Don't forget it. 
will be back with an army. Okay, not yet. Because they're still pretty powerful, the Jews are. All right? So, get this down. Because this becomes important. There are, back to the map. The map shows two kingdoms. I know we call the Jews the Israelites. But if you look closely here, here's Jerusalem, the capital, set up by David in 1000. And then here is this thing called Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, as the Messiah will be called. And then here's Israel. You're like, yeah, Israel, I got it. That's this whole area. Like, nope, 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 nope. Right here, it splits. Judah is the southern kingdom. Israel is the northern kingdom. The 12 tribes, right, are divided and allocated lands, clan lands, around this. And right in here at Jerusalem is the, the tribe of Benjamin, okay? And the tribe of Benjamin is where David came from. So this is the border, and these people all tended to kind of bicker because that's what families do. And David shrewdly makes the capital right on the border, right? The Temple Mount that is still there today with the remnants of the temple. Very, very politically wise of David to say, we'll just share the capital until 922. And then the north and the south split. The north is managed terribly by their kings. And just pick any, about three out of four of the prophecies there on your Bible bookcase are kings behaving badly. Three out of four are terrible. And the north just never has anybody good. The south kind of bumps along then for the next few hundred years until about the 930s. So the tribe of Benjamin then is this aristocracy tribe of David. Okay, So from the 920s to around 930s, the great Davidic David's dynasty slowly falls apart because they started coveting what everybody around them had, the power and the glory, and the whole thing is going to ruin over hundreds and hundreds of years, despite all of these prophets saying, you're going to be dragged off as slaves to all of these various colors, (laughs) to all these empires, and you're going to lose all your wealth and you're going to, going to forget what was precious and what was supposed to be protected. And you'll get exactly what you wanted, which is to be exactly like everybody else. The very thing I warned you against. You look at these, your Bible bookcase on here, and you see these five books of the major prophets on here. Isaiah, Jeremiah, the Lament, Jeremiah's Lamentation. Ezekiel and Daniel. You see all these on here. In the first couple of verses, the prophet will tell you which kingdom, Judah or Israel, they're talking to. So you open up Isaiah, you go to the very first couple of verses. It says, Isaiah, writing to the king in Judah. Like, ah, southern kingdom, I get it. Northern kingdom falls in 522. Southern kingdom, Israel's gone in 587. About 587, 586, it's all kaput. It's all done. All right. First couple of verses will tell you what kingdom they're writing to. Isaiah is writing to Judah. Later, Jeremiah is also writing to Judah. Jeremiah writes for, uh, prophesies for 39 years, not a day of success once. They never did what he told them to. Um, so, 
right there. He's trying to tell him, both those major prophets are trying to tell him what's going on. 920s to the 730s, this dynasty falls apart. And what you find then is Isaiah begins to write right there in chapter one, verses seven through eight in the book of, in the, in what Isaiah wrote. And he says, says this, your country lies in desolation, is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, aliens devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And daughter Zion, you know, Mount Zion, that's where the temple is. Still to this day, it's called Zion, the mountain there. And daughter Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard. In other words, what was once a spectacular temple and palace now looks like somebody's lean to out in a garden, like a shelter in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Zion, that capital mount, even to present day, the temple mount, and Isaiah then pronounces God's judgment on the people just a few verses later. This is my paraphrase. He says, I've had enough of your burnt offerings. I can't handle your solemn assemblies, your festivals. You act like all of these festivals and these these solemn assemblies and your Sabbath, you act like it's all a burden on you. You don't want to be holy people. You don't respect the Torah or the Sabbath or the land or anything. Your hands are full of blood. So cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow, act like the people I told you to act like in the Torah, God says. But you don't want to. On and on and on, from one prophet to another, they're all saying the same thing. Judah in the south, Israel in the north, you have become like the people around you. You become oppressive, violent, arrogant, and ignoring the law, and coveting others, and mostly you have wanted power. Finally, around 587 BC, Jeremiah sits down in the rubble of Jerusalem. Everything's destroyed. All the gold is gone. Everything's over. He sits down, and he begins to weep and writes his lament. It's over. It's all over with. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. God says, Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, the power God, and go after other gods that you've not known ever before? And then come and stand before me in my house, what's left of it, what's called by my name, and say, We are safe only to go on doing all these same abominations that you've been doing for the last 300 years? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Don't miss the phrase, den of robbers. This is exactly where Jesus got it, right here from Jeremiah chapter 7. And everyone that heard him say it in the temple that day, Jesus say this, knew exactly what he was quoting and what the context was. You have become covetous of, the, of what everybody else has, and you're going to pay the price. You thinking what I'm thinking? You guys, you know, as you're sitting here listening to this, you thinking like what I'm thinking? Let, let's just go here for a minute. Are you wondering, hey, what about American Christians these days during our lifetime? Hmm, is there anything here to learn? Anything here to, like, wake up? Any exclamation point, ding, 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 going off? Anything going on here? Have we been seduced by power and influence? 
Have we made unholy alliances with the surrounding culture? Are we oppressing the orphan and the widow? Do we want to worship Baal, the power god? Do we live by the god of mammon and wealth and not sharing? You and I would be absolutely thoughtless and slipshod if we didn't use the exiles and the prophets and all of this color on the map as a mirror for our own day and our own lives and the choices we're making. And then we sit around and say like, how come they couldn't see that coming? They had hundreds and hundreds of years. Those silly, silly Israelites. Wake up. Well, I don't feel like arguing this morning, not even with myself. So the Jews are sent on this death march first by the Assyrians and their own families' heads tied around their necks. Yes, don't miss it. The Assyrians take the Jews, they take the aristocracy and all those people who had it so good, they chopped off their, their relatives, their families' heads and tied them on a rope around their neck and sent them off. Matt, please, sent them off. Are you good? Sent them all the way from Jerusalem, walk, 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 to Nineveh. With your relative's head tied around your neck. Then come the Babylonians. The Babylonians are a little more sophisticated than that. They take Daniel and the other last influential aristocrats, and they take them over to their capital, the Babylon, and they're now going to indoctrinate them to become good Babylonians, but still be Hebrew. And so they'll send them back as puppets and vassals to make economic deals and work out the trade and be their representatives in their empire. Smart. Of course, Daniel doesn't want to do that if you read the book of Daniel. Okay. Slowly, ever so slowly, over hundreds of years, the Jews begin to slowly trickle back into the promised land. As these empires fall apart themselves and the Jews get released from their slavery, they begin to wander home back across the Jordan into the promised land of Abraham, the land that was freed by Moses and by Joshua and by the rest of them. And so here's what happens. When everything is lost and broke down, This is what people do. This is what we do. We begin to stack rocks. What people do when they've lost everything, they build an altar and they begin to worship God. If your life is living hell, you stack rocks. If you're living in a fog and you're wiped out and you're tired, and things aren't working, you begin to stack rocks. You make an altar to God. And you begin to worship God. And so here it is right here in the Psalms. Psalm 43, the 43rd Psalm. And then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my joy and my delight, and I will praise you with the harp, O God, my God. What else is there to do when you've lost everything? Finally, when everything's been taken away, they return to God. Out of the ruin and the rubble, like people have always done, they gather around a rock and they light a fire and they worship God. God is more like a mother who cannot forget their, is her child. 
And though we sin and rebel and though all hell breaks loose in our lives, still God is with us, just like he was with the, the Israelites. And people begin to gather around these altars and they gather around the fire and they begin to tell the stories of who they once were. Do you remember Abraham? Do you remember the journey he took and how he came and how God told him that I will make a great nation out of you? And then we all got sent down into slavery for 430 years in Egypt. And then Moses, God sent Moses, and then we whined and complained out there in the Sinai Peninsula in the desert. But yet God took us into the promised land. You remember how we messed up in the promised land? Oh, David was good. Solomon was great. What happened? We forgot who we were. We have an identity crisis. And when you and I forget who we are, the thing to do is go stack some rocks, gather around a fire, and tell the stories of who you once were and come back to yourself. What else are you going to do? There's no magic fix. You just tell the stories of your life. So brothers and sisters, you don't have the answer. Everything's ambiguous. You're asking the question, what am I protecting? You're saying like my sanity, my family, my brothers and sisters, anything I can grasp. Everything's ambiguous in the fog, but the divine hand is holding you in that fog. And so you stack the rocks and you build a fire. (laughs) As the fall sets, especially on a day like today, and the days get short and the leaves fall and the rains will come, sometime you know what you're supposed to do. You get your little fire pit and you stack up some blocks or bricks or whatever and you get some wood and you build a fire and you sit around with your kids and with your friends and your neighbors and you just tell stories. Don't complain about the other side of the aisle. Just get together and have a good time and laugh and remember who you are. I had the opportunity twice this week to gather around a fire with friends. Nothing better. Cures you of what ails you. And you remember who you are and what's most important and what's really worth it protecting. So do that and worship God with the flame and the rocks. Amen.